liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell, your humble host. I am doing a solo show tonight. Uh, I'm going to make this an, uh, a Locals exclusive because I intend to uncover the truth behind the propaganda push for the U.S. intervention in Ukraine. And I don't think that YouTube will look kindly upon that. So to my Locals audience, thank you guys so much for subscribing over there. And thank you so much for supporting the show. If anybody wants to watch the video to this episode, go to libertylockdown.locals.com and you will be able to do so. If you want to become a supporting member of the show, I will be doing an AMA uh, in another, I think next week actually, uh, where I will have supporters of the show come on screen with me to ask questions if you so choose, or you can stay anonymous and just ask me questions in the chat. It doesn't matter to me either way. Uh, but it's it's a great experience to get to know you guys better, and I really appreciate the support. I also wanted to give a shout out to the Dad Presents he had on. I can't even believe he got it. I am so jealous. But he had on Dr. Ron Paul. My goodness. And it was a great episode. I'm going to link to it in the description uh, to this episode so that you guys can go check it out. Make sure you support him. He's doing great work. And, uh, and to get to hear from Dr. Ron Paul. My God. Does it get any better than that? I, th I thought I thought I had reached the mountaintop with Dave Smith, and then the Dad Presents gets on Ron Paul. I'm jealous. I'm, gen I'm genuinely jealous. I hope it happens in my lifetime or his. Uh, but anyways, uh, also, next week I will be having on uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano, which is going to be awesome. That'll probably be safe to put on YouTube. We'll see. Uh, but then I will also be having Roger Stone which will either be a Locals or Odyssey exclusive uh, because Roger Stone is persona non grata and that'll get nuked. But I'm thrilled to have them on. Big shout out to Chase Geyser who hooked me up with the connect for uh, Roger Stone. That's going to be a barn burner, so don't miss it. Uh, so tonight I wanted to start off, and this is going to sound kind of crazy, but I want to start off with reading a letter from Vladimir Putin. And this is why this episode is going to be on Locals exclusively, because I don't think that YouTube would take kindly to me going straight to the devil's lair to listen to his sermon. How dare I? Uh, but I think that when you're in a conflict like this, it's important that you hear the opposing side's arguments. You know, like, is that so crazy? And not to say that you believe them all lock, stock and barrel. You should still keep a critical mind. You should consider the fact that he is a you know, quasi-dictator type figure. Um, and he's going to be painting his own narrative. So, like, I'm not taking all of this in as if it's 100% factual or anything like that. But to ignore it entirely is absurd. That would be like ignoring the media narrative when it comes to what we've done in our involvement in Ukraine. Well, that would be a mistake too, right? Because you want to know what the narrative is because you have to be able to fight it or you have to be able to, you know, glean the, the little nuggets of truth that you can find in reporting on all sides. Um, so that's what I'm going to do tonight. And I hope you guys find value in it. I think you will. Uh, I think that this is really compelling stuff, to be honest. 
and you're not going to hear it anywhere else because uh, makes you un-American. <laughs> it's illegal practically to to give the other side. So here we go. So this is an article by Russian President Vladimir Putin, quote, on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, end quote. And this, the rest of this will just be reading from the article. Uh, during the recent direct line, this is, by the way, this was July 12th. So this was before the war began by quite a bit. And I think it kind of lays the groundwork for their, their belief system, their justification for it, at least. During the recent direct line, when I was asked about Russian-Ukrainian relations, I said that Russians and Ukrainians were one people, a single whole. These words were not driven by some short-term considerations or prompted by the current political context. It is what I have said on numerous occasions and what I firmly believe. I therefore feel it necessary to explain my position in detail and share my assessments of today's situation. First of all, I would like to emphasize that the wall that has emerged in recent years between Russia and Ukraine, between the parts of what is essentially the same historical and spiritual space, to my mind is our greatest common misfortune and tragedy. These are, first and foremost, the consequences of our own mistakes made at different periods of time, but these are also the results of deliberate efforts by those forces that have always sought to undermine our unity. See, I like the fact that he's at least acknowledging that it is also their fault. You know, they... they play their own part in this misfortune. The formula they apply has been known from time immemorial, divide and rule. There is nothing new here, hence the attempts to play on the, quote, national question, end quote, and sow discord among people, the overarching goal being to divide and then to pit the parts of a single people against one another. To have a better understanding of the present and look into the future, we need to turn to history. Certainly, it is impossible to cover in this article all the developments that have taken place over uh, more than a thousand years, but I will focus on the key pivotal moments that are important for us to remember, both in Russia and Ukraine. Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians are all descendants of ancient Rus, which was, I, I guess that's slang for ancient Russia, or maybe that was what it used to be called back in the day, which was the largest state in Europe. Slavic and other tribes across the vast territory from Ladoga, Nov Novgorod, and Sikov to Kiev and Chernigov were bound together by one language, which we now refer to as Old Russian. Economic ties, the rules of the princes of the Rurik dynasty, dynasty, and after the baptism of Rus, the Orthodox faith. The spiritual choice made by St. Vladimir, who was both Prince of Nov Novgorod and Grand Prince of Kiev, still largely determines our affinity today. <clears throat> Forgive me for the mispronunciations. I'm doing my best. This is not my language. Spanish I can handle. Russia's tough. A Russian is tough. The, the throne of Kiev held a dormant position in ancient Rus. This had been the custom since the late 9th century. The tale of bygone years captured for posterity the words of Oleg of the prophet about Kiev. Let it be the mother of all Russian cities. Later, like other European states at that time, ancient Rus faced a decline of central rule and fragmentation. At the same time, both the nobility and the common people perceived Rus as a common territory, as their homeland. The fragmentation intensified after Batu Khan's devastating invasion, which ravaged many cities, including Kiev. The north northeastern part of Rus fell under the control of the Golden Horde, but retained limited sovereignty. The southern and western Russian lands largely became part of the Grand Duchy of uh, Lithuania, which, most significantly, was referred to in historical records as the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and Russia. Members of, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, Duki? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Members of the princely and boyar clans would change services from one prince to another, feuding with each other, but also making friendships and alliances. Voivod Bobrok of Volin, 
and the sons of Grand Duke of Lithuania, Algirdas, Andrei of Polosk, and Dmitri of Buryansk, fought next to the Grand Duke Dmitri Ivanovich of Moscow on the Kolokovo field. At the same time, Grand Duke of Lithuania, Hogalia, son of the Princess of Tver, led his troops to join with Mamai. Those are all pages of our shared history, reflecting its complex and multidimensional nature. Most importantly, people born in Western and Eastern Russia lands spoke the same language. <clears throat> Their faith was orthodox. Up to the middle of the 15th century, the unified church government remained in place. At a new stage of historical development, both Lithuania Rus and Moscow Rus could have become the points of attraction and consolidation of the territories of ancient Rus. If it so happened that Moscow became the center of reunification, Continuing the tradition of ancient Russian statehood, Moscow princes, the descendants of Prince Alexander Nevsky, came off the foreign yoke and began gathering the Russian lands. In the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, other processes were unfolding. In the 14th century, Lithuania's ruling elite converted to Catholicism. In the 16th century, it signed the Union of Lublin with the Kingdom of Poland to form the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The Polish Catholic nobility received considerable land holdings and privileges in the territory of Rus. In accordance with the 1596 Union of Brest, part of the Western R Russian Orthodox clergy submitted to the authority of the Pope. The process of Polonization and Latinization began, ousting Orthodoxy. As a consequence, in the 16th to 17th centuries, the liberation movement of the Orthodox population was gaining strength in the uh, Dnieper region. The uh, events during the times of Hetman Bodan Kamilnitsky began a turning point. His supporters struggled for autonomy from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. In its 1649 appeal to the King of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Zaborsin host demanded that the rights of the Russian Orthodox population be respected, that the uh, Voivode of Kiev be Russian and Greek faith, and that the persecution of the churches of God be stopped, but the Cossacks were not heard. Bodan Kamiansky then made appeals to Moscow, which were considered by the Zemsky Sobor. On uh, October 1st, 1653, members of the Supreme Representative Body of the Russian State decided to support their brothers in faith and take them under patronage. In January 1654, the Peryalsalav Council confirmed that decision. Subsequently, the ambassador of Bodon Kamiansky and Moscow visited dozens of cities, including Kiev, whose population swore allegiance to the Russian Tsar. In incidentally, nothing of the kind happened at the conclusion of the Union of Lublin. In a letter to Moscow in, in 1654, Boron Kiminsky thanked Tsar Alexei Mikhailovich for taking the whole Zaporizhian host and the whole Russian Orthodox world under the strong and high hand of the Tsar. It means that in their appeals to both the Polish king and the Russian Tsar, the Cossacks refer to and define themselves as Russian Orthodox people. So you can see this this has a ton of religious backdrop that I don't think most Americans are privy to whatsoever, which is why I'm reading this. Over the course of the protracted war between the Russian state and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, some of the Hetman's successors of Boran Kiminsky would detach themselves from Moscow or seek support from Sweden, Poland, or Turkey. But again, for the people, that was a war of liberation. It ended with the truce of Andrusovo, in 1667, the final outcome was sealed by the Treaty of Perpetual Peace in 1686. The Russian state incorporated the city of Kiev in the lands of the left bank of the Dnieper River, including Poltava region, Chernigov region, and Zaporozhye. Their inhabitants were reunited with the main part of the Russian Orthodox people. These territories were referred to as Malorossia, Little Russia. 
The name Ukraine was used more often in the meaning of the old Russian word Ukraina, periphery, which is found in written sources from the 12th century, referring to various border territories. And the word Ukrainian, judging by archival documents, originally referred to frontier guards who protected the external borders. That's fascinating. On the right bank, which remained under the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the old orders were restored and social and religious oppression intensified. On the contrary, the lands on the left bank taken, uh, taken under the protection of the unified state saw rapid development. People from the other bank of the Dnieper moved here en masse. They sought support from people who spoke the same language and had the same faith. During the Great Northern War with Sweden, the people in Malorossia were not faced with the choice of whom to side with. Only a small portion of the Cossacks supported Mazeppa's rebellion. People of all orders and degrees considered themselves Russian and Orthodox. Imagine an American politician trying to give you the history of the past hundred years in this level of detail, much less a thousand years like Putin's doing right now. I mean, say what you will about the guy, but he's in infinitely more intelligent and well-read than the vast, vast majority of American politicians. Cossack senior officers belonging to the nobility would reach the heights of political, diplomatic, and military careers in Russia. Graduates of Kiev, Kiev Moila Academy played a leading role in church life. This was also the case during the Hetmanate, an essentially autonomous state formation with a special internal structure, and later in the Russian Empire. Malorussians in many ways helped build a big common country, its statehood, culture, and science. They participated in exploration and development of the Urals, Siberia, the Caucasus, the Caucasus and the Far East. Incidentally, during the Soviet period, natives of Ukraine held major, including the highest posts in the leadership of the United of the Unified State. Suffice it to say that Nikita Khrushchev and Leonid Brezhnev, whose party biography was most closely associated with Ukraine, led the Communist Party of the Soviet Union for almost 30 years. In the second half of the 18th century, following the wars with the Ottoman Empire, Russia incorporated Crimea and the lands of Black Sea region, which began, became known as Novorussia. They were populated by people from all of the Russian provinces. After the partitions of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Russian Empire regained the Western Old Russian lands with the exception of Galicia and Transcarpathia, which became part of the Austrian and later Austro-Hungarian Austro Empire. The incorporation of the Western Russian lands into the single state was not merely the result of political and diplomatic decisions. It was underlain by the common faith, shared culture, tra traditions, and, I would like to emphasize it once again, language similarity. Thus, as early as the beginning of the 17th century, one of the hierarchs of the U Uniate Church, Joseph Rotsky, communicated to Rome that people in Moscovia called Russians from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth their brothers, that their written language was absolutely identical and differences in the vernacular were insignificant. He drew an analogy with the residents of Rome and Bergamo. These are, as we know, the center and the north of modern Italy. Many, it's fascinating that he's bringing up the language so, so much, given that one of the main uh, demands that he has in ending this war is that Ukraine lift all restrictions of uh, free Russian speaking and the use of, of the Russian language in Ukraine. So I find that interesting. Many centuries of fragmentation and living within different states naturally brought about regional language peculiarities peculiarities resulting in the emergence of dialects. The vernacular enriched in the literary language. Ivan Kolyrevsky, I can't keep doing these names. Skrovoroda, Shevchenko played a huge role here. Their works are 
are our common literary and cultural heritage. Chepchenko wrote poetry in the Ukrainian language and prose mainly in Russian. The books of Gogol, a Russian patriot and native of, I can't do it, are written in Russian, bristling with Malorussian folk saying and motifs. How can this heritage be divided between Russian and Ukraine and why do it? The southwestern lands of the Russian Empire, Malorussia and Novorussia, and the Crimea developed as ethnically and religious diverse entities. Crimean Tatars, Armenians, Greeks, Jews, Karaitites, Krimchaks, Bulgarians, Poles, Serbs, Germans, and other people lived here. They all preserved their faith, traditions, and customs. I am not going to idealize anything. We do know there, there were the value of circular of 1863 and then the Ems Ukaz of 1876, which restricted the publication and importation of religious and socio-political literature in the Ukrainian language, but it's important to be mindful of the historical context. These decisions were taken against the backdrop of dramatic events in Poland and the desire of the leaders of the Polish nation, national movement to exploit the Ukrainian issue to their own advantage. I should add that works of fiction, books of Ukrainian poetry, and folk songs continue to be published. There is objective evidence that the Russian Empire was witnessing an active process of development of the Malorussian cultural identity within the greater Russian nation, which united the Velikorussians, the Malorussians, and the Belarusians. At the same time, the idea of Ukrainian people as a nation separate from the Russians started to form and gain ground among the Polish elite and a part of the Malorussian intelligentsia. Since there was no historical basis and could, could not have been any, conclusions were substantiated by all sorts of con concoctions, which went as far as to claim that the Ukrainians are the true Slavs and the Russians, the Muscovites, are not. Such, such hypotheses became increasingly used for political purposes as a tool of rivalry between European states. Since the late 19th century, the Austro-Hungarian authorities had latched on to the narrative, using it as a counterbalance to the Polish national movement and pro-Muscovite sentiments in Galicia. During World War I, Vienna played a role in the formation of so-called Legion of Ukrainian Sikh Riflemen. Uh, Galicians, or Galicians suspected of sympathies with Orthodox Christianity and, Russian, and Russia were subjected to brutal repression and thrown into the concentration camps of Thalerhof and Terezin. Further developments had to do with the collapse of European empires, the fierce civil war that broke out across the vast majority of the former Russian empire and foreign intervention. After the, uh, after the February Revolution in March 1917, the Central Rada was established in Kiev and it intended to become the organ of supreme power. In November 1917, in its third universal, it declared the creation of the Ukrainian People's Republic as part of Russia. In December 1917, UPR representatives arrived in Brest-Litovsk, where they where Soviet Russia was negotiating with Germany and its allies at a meeting on January 10th 1918 the head of Ukrainian delegation read out a note proclaiming the independence of Ukraine subsequently the central rada proclaimed Ukraine independent in its fourth universal the declared sovereignty did not last long just a few weeks later rada delegates signed a separate treaty with the german bloc countries germany and austria hungary were at the time in a dire situation and needed ukrainian bread and raw materials in order to secure large scale supplies they obtained consent for sending their troops and technical staff to the UPR. In fact, this was used as a pretext for occupation. I've heard that story about a million times over the past hundred years. For those who have today given up the full control of Ukraine to external forces, it would be instructive to remember that back in 1918, such a decision proved fatal for the ruling regime in Kiev. With the direct involvement of the occupying forces, the Central Rada was overthrown and Hetman Pablo Skoropadinsky was brought to power, proclaiming instead of the UPR, the Ukrainian state, which was essentially under German protectorate. 
it seems a little foreboding there that perhaps he's he's warning like you take this path it ends in doom for the leadership of ukraine given what's happening now that that could very well be what message was intending in november 1918 following the revolutionary events in germany and austria-hungary pablo skorobodinsky <laughs> who had lost the support of german bayonets took a different course declaring that Ukraine is to take the lead in the formation of all, of an all-Russian federation. However, the regime was soon changed again. It was now the time of the so-called directorate. In, in autumn 1918, Ukrainian nationalists proclaimed the, proclaimed the West Ukrainian People's Republic and in January 1919 announced its unification with the Ukrainian People's Republic. In July 1919, Ukrainian forces were crushed by Polish troops and the territory of the former WUPR came under the Polish rule. In April 1920, Simon Petlyura, portrayed as one of the heroes in today's Ukraine, concluded secret conventions on behalf of the UPR directorate, giving up in exchange for military support Galicia and Western Volhynia lands to Poland. In May 1920, Petlyura entered Kiev in a convoy of Polish military units, but not for long. As early as November 1920, following a truce between Poland and Soviet Russia, the remnants of Petlyura's forces surrendered to those same poles. The example of the UPR shows that different kinds of quasi-state formations that emerged across the former Russian Empire at the time of the Civil War and turbulence were inherently unstable. Nationalists sought to create their own independent states, while lead leaders of the white movement uh, advocated indivisible Russia. Many of the republics established by the Bolshevik supporters did not see themselves outside Russia either. Nevertheless, Bolshevik party leaders sometimes basically drove them out of Soviet Russia for, ver for various reasons. Thus, in early 1918, the Donetsk Krivoy Soviet Republic was proclaimed and asked Moscow to incorporate in it into Soviet Russia. This was met with a refusal. During a meeting with the Republic's leaders, Vladimir Lenin insisted that they act as part of Soviet Ukraine. On March 15, 1918, the Central Committee of the Russian Communist Party Bolsheviks directly ordered that delegates be sent to the Ukrainian Congress of Soviets, including from the Donetsk Basin, and that one government for all of Ukraine be created at the Congress. The territories of the Donetsk Krivoy Rogue Soviet Republic later formed most of the regions of southeastern Ukraine. Under the 1921 Treaty of Riga concluded between the Russian SFSR, the Ukrainian SSR, and Poland, the western lands of the former Russian Empire were ceded to Poland, in the interwar period, the Polish government pursued an active resettlement policy seeking to change the ethnic composition of the eastern borderlands. The Polish name for what is now western Ukraine, western Belarus, and parts of Lithuania. The areas were subjected to harsh Polonization, local culture, and traditions suppressed. Later, during World War II, radical groups of Ukrainian nationalists used this as a pretext for terror not only against Polish, but also against Jewish and Russian populations. In 1922, when the USSR was created, with the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic becoming one of its founders, a rather fierce debate among the Bolshevik leaders resulted in the implementation of Lenin's plan to form a union state as a federation of equal republics. The right of the, for the republics uh, to freely secede from the union was included in the text of the Declaration of the Creation of the Union of Soviet Social, Socialist Republics and subsequently in the 1924 USSR Constitution. By doing so, the, the authors planted in the foundation of our statehood the most dangerous time bomb, which exploded the moment the safety mechanism provided by the leading role of the CPSU was gone, the party itself collapsing from within. A parade of sovereignties followed. On December 8, 8 1991, the so-called Belozvez 
agreement of the creation of the Commonwealth of Independent States was signed, stating that the USSR as a subject of international law and geopolitical reality no longer existed. By the way, Ukraine never signed or ratified the CIS charter adopted back in 1993. That's interesting. In the 1920s through the 1930s, the Bolsheviks actively promoted the localization policy, which took the form of Ukrainization in the Ukrainian SSR symbolically as part of this policy and with consent of Soviet authorities. Mikhail, Mikhail uh, Grushevsky, former chairman of Central Rada, one of the ideologists of Ukrainian nationalism, who at a certain period of time had been supported by Austria and Hungary, was returned to the USSR and was elected member of the Academy of Sciences. The localization policy undoubtedly played a major role in the development and con consolidation of Ukrainian culture, language, and identity. At the same time, under the guise of combating the so-called Russian great power chauvinism, Ukrainization was often imposed on those who did not see themselves as Ukrainians. This Soviet national policy secured at the state level the provision on these on three separate Slavic peoples, Russian, Ukrainian, and Belarusian, instead of the large Russian nation, a triune people comprising Belarusians, Malorusians, and Belarusians. In 1939, the USSR regained the lands early seized by Poland. A major portion of these became part of the Soviet Ukraine. In 1940, the Ukrainian SSR incorporated part of Bessarabia, which had been occupied by Romania since 1918, as well as northern Bukovina, in 1948, Zemini Island, Snake Island. Now that's that got some news, didn't it? Oof. And the Black Sea became part of Ukraine. In 1954, the Crimean region of the RSFSR was given to the Ukrainian SSR in gross violation of legal norms that were enforced at the time. I would like to dwell on the destiny of Carpathian Ruthenia, which became part of Czechoslovakia following the breakup of Austria-Hungary. Rusins made a, up a considerable share of local population. While this is hardly mentioned any longer after the liberation of Transcarpathia by Soviet troops, the Congress or the Orthodox population or of the region voted for the inclusion of Carpathian Ruthenia and the RSFSR, or as a separate Carpathian, Carpathian Republic in the USSR proper. Yet the choice of people was ignored. In summer 1945, the historical act as the reunification of Carpathian Ukraine with its ancient motherland Ukraine, as the Pravda newspaper put it, was announced. Therefore, modern Ukraine is entirely the product of the Soviet era. We know and remember well that it was shaped for a significant part on the lands of historical Russia. To make sure of that is enough to look at the boundaries of the lands reunited with the Russian state in the 17th century and the territory of the Ukrainian SSR when it left the Soviet Union. So this is his thesis. This is his justification, I, I assume. The Bolsheviks treated the Russian people as inexhaustible material for their social experiments. They dreamt of a world revolution that would wipe out national states. That is, they sound pretty based. That is why they were so generous in drawing borders and bestowing territorial gifts. It is no longer important what exactly the idea of the Bolshevik leaders who were chopping the country into pieces was. We can disagree about minor details, background and log logics behind certain decisions. One fact is crystal clear. Russia was robbed indeed. When working on this article, I relied on open source documents that contain well-known facts rather than on some secret records. The leaders of modern Ukraine and their external patrons prefer to overlook these facts. They do not miss a chance, however, both inside the country and abroad to condemn the crimes of the Soviet regime, listing among them events with which neither the CPSU nor the USSR, let alone modern Russia, have anything to do. At the same time, the Bolsheviks' effort to detach from Russia its historical territories are not considered a crime. And we know why. If they brought about the weakening of Russia, our ill wishes are happy with that. 
Of course, inside the USSR, borders between republics were never seen as state borders. They were nominal within a single country, which, while featuring all the attributes of a federation, was highly centralized. This, again, was secured by the CPSU's leading role. But in 1991, all those territories, and which is most important, or more important, people found themselves, oh, people, found themselves abroad overnight, taken away this time indeed for the, from their historical motherland. What can be said to this? Things change. Countries and communities are no exception. Of course, some part of people in the process of its development, influenced by a number of reasons and historical circumstances, can become aware of itself as a separate nation and a certain movement. How should we treat that? There is only one answer, with respect. Well, that's a stunning answer, given the nature of the news today. You want to establish a state on your own, you are welcome. But what are the terms? I will recall the assessment given by one of the most prominent political figures of New Russia, first mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak, as a legal expert who believed that every decision must be legitimate in 1992, he shared the following opinion. The republics that were founders of the Union, having denounced the 1922 Union Treaty, must return to the boundaries they had before joining the Soviet Union. All other territorial acquisitions are subject to discussions, negotiations, given that the ground ha has been revoked. It seems kind of reasonable. In other words, when you leave, take what you brought with you. This logic is hard to refute. I will just say that the Bolsheviks had embarked on reshaping boundaries even before the Soviet Union, manipulating with territories to their liking in disregard of people's views. The Russian Federation recognized the new geo geopolitical realities and not only recognized, but indeed did a lot for Ukraine to establish itself as an independent country. Throughout the difficult 1990s and in the, in the new millennium, we have provided considerable support to Ukraine. Whatever political arithmetic of its own Kiev may wish to apply, in 1991 through 2013, Ukraine's budget savings amounted to more than 82 billion US dollars, while today it holds on to the mere uh, 1.5 billion of Russian payments for gas transit to Europe. If economic ties between our countries had been retained, Ukraine would enjoy the benefit of tens of billions of dollars. Ukraine and Russia have developed as a single economic system over decades and centuries. The profound cooperation we had 30 years ago is an example for the European Union to look up to. We are natural complementary economic partners. Such a close relationship can strengthen competitive advantages, increasing the potential of both countries. So a lot of economic justification here. Ukraine used to possess great potential, which included powerful infrastructure, gas transportation system, advanced shipbuilding, aviation, rocket instrument, engineering industries, as well as world-class scientific design and engineering schools. Taking over this legacy and declaring independence, Ukrainian leaders promised that the Ukrainian economy would be one of the leading ones and the standard of living would be among the best in Europe. Today, high-tech industrial giants that were once the pride of Ukraine and the entire union are sinking. I've heard that's true, actually. Engineering output has dropped by 42% over 10 years. The scale of deindustrialization and overall economic degradation is visible in Ukraine's electricity production, which has seen a nearly two-time increase in 30 years. Finally, according to IMF reports in 2019, before the coronavirus pandemic broke out, Ukraine's GDP per capita had been below uh, 4,000 US dollars. Brutal. This is less than in the Republic of Albania and Moldova and unrecognized Kosovo. Nowadays, Ukraine is Europe's poorest country. I did not know that. That's wild. But it explains the revolutions and the, the separation that's happening within it. Who is to blame for this? Is it the people of Ukraine's fault? Certainly not. It was the Ukrainian authorities who wasted and frittered away the achievements of many generations. 
We know how hardworking and talented the people of Ukraine are. They can achieve success and outstanding results with perseverance and determination. And these qualities, as well as their openness, innate optimism and hospitality have not gone. The feelings of millions of people who treat Russia not just well, but with great affection, just as we feel about Ukraine, remain the same. Until 2014, hundreds of agreements and joint projects were aimed at development, developing our economies, business and cultural ties, strengthening security, and solving common social and environmental pro problems. They bought, brought tangible benefits to people, both in Russia and Ukraine. This is what we believe to be most important, and that is why we had a fruitful interaction with all. I emphasize with all the leaders of Ukraine. Even after the events of Kiev of 2014, I charged the Russian government to elaborate options for pers uh, preserving and maintaining our economic ties with relevant ministries and agencies. However, there was and is still no mutual will to do the same. Nevertheless, Russia is still one of Ukraine's top three trading partners and hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are coming to us to work and they find a welcome reception and support. So that was, so that what the aggressor state is. When the, US, when the USSR collapsed, many people in Russia and Ukraine sincerely believed and assumed that our close cultural, spiritual, and economic ties would certainly last, as would the commonality of our people, who had always had a sense of unity at their core. However, events, at first gradually and then more rapidly, started to move in a different direction. This is where it gets interesting. I thought the histor historical perspective was interesting, too. Uh, if nothing else, it just demonstrates how unbelievably complex their history is. And it's just absurd that armchair libertarians are coming out and saying, good guy, bad guy. I know exactly what's happened. It's like, bro, no, you don't. <laughs> and I'm not pretending I do either, but at least I'm doing as much reading as possible to try and wrap my head around it so I can at least have an opinion here. Um, but I think the the level of certitude that people are taking with this issue and believing that they know, you know exactly what transpired and they know that we should or shouldn't be supporting them. I mean, other than a principled stand as to non-interventionism, I don't know how you can make an advocacy statement for intervention without knowing all of this and having, you know, historical context from which to establish your belief system. It's just embarrassing, to be honest. In essence, Ukraine's ruling circles decided to justify their country's independence through the denial of its past. However, except for border issues, they began to myth mythologize and rewrite history, edit out everything that united us, and refer to the period when Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire as the Soviet Union as an occupation. The common tragedy of collectivization and famine of the early 1930s was portrayed as the genocide of the Ukrainian people. I think it kind of was, but anyways, we'll see what he has to say here. Radicals and neo-Nazis were open and more and more insolent about their ambitions. They were indulged by both the official authorities and local oligarchs who robbed the people of Ukraine and kept their stolen money in Western banks ready to sell the motherland for the sake of preserving their capital. That's all true. Just so you know, the, uh, I think, it was, I don't know if it was the Panama papers or one of those big drops of financial documents demonstrated Zelensky and all these oligarchs have, I mean, so does Putin, but since we're talking about, you know, the holy Ukrainian government that we all must deify, they've been proven to be corrupt. Just so you know, uh, to this should be added the persistent weakness of state institutions and the position of a willing hostage to someone uh, else's geo geopolitical will. Hmm. Someone else's, I wonder who. I recall that long ago, well before 2014, the US and EU countries systematically and consistently pushed Ukraine to curtail and limit economic cooperation, cooperation with Russia. We, as the largest trade and economic partner in U of Ukraine, suggested discussing the emerging, 
the emerging problems in the Ukraine-Russia-EU format. But every time we were told that Russia had nothing to do with it and that the issue concerned only the EU and, EU and Ukraine, de facto Western countries rejected Russia's repeated calls for dialogue. That's true. Step by step, Ukraine was dragged into a dangerous geopolitical game aiming, aimed at turning Ukraine into a barrier between Europe and Russia, a springboard against Russia. Inevitably, there came a time when the concept of Ukraine is not Russia was no longer an option. There was a need for the anti-Russia concept, which we will never accept. Seems fair, to be honest. The owners of this project took as a basis the old groundwork of the Polish-Austrian ideal uh, ideologists to create an anti-Moscow Russia, and, and there is no need to deceive anyone that this is being done in the interests of the people of Ukraine. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth never needed Ukrainian culture, much less Cossack autonomy. In Austria-Hungary, historical Russian lands were mercilessly exploited and remained the poorest. The Nazis, abetted by collabor collaborators from the OUN-UPA, did not need Ukraine, but a living space and, a, and slaves for Aryan overlords. Nor were the interests of the Ukrainian people thought of in February 2014. The legitimate public discontent caused by acute socioeconomic problems, mistakes, and inconsistent actions of the authorities of the time was simply cynically exploited. Western countries directly interfered in Ukraine's <clears throat> internal affairs and supported the coup. Facts. Radical nationalist groups served as its battering ram. Their slogans, ideology, and blatant aggressive Rus uh, Russophobia have, to a large extent, become defining elements of state policy in Ukraine. All the things that united us and bring us together so far came under attack. First and foremost, the Russian language. Let me remind you that the new Maidan authorities first tried to repeal the law on state language policy. Then there was the law on the purification of power, the law on education that virtually cut the Russian language out of the educational process. Lastly, as early as May of this year, the current president introduced a bill on indigenous peoples to the Rada. Only those who constitute an ethnic minority and do not have their own state entity outside Ukraine are recognized as indigenous. The law has been passed. New seeds of discord have been sown. And this is happening in a country, as I have already noted, that is very complex in terms of its territorial, national, and linguistic composition and its history of formation. There may be an argument. If you are talking about a single large nation, a triune nation, then what difference does it make who people consider themselves to be? Russians, Ukrainians, or Belarusians. I completely agree with this, especially since the determination of nationality, particularly in mixed families, is the right of every individual free to make his, his or her own choice. He just he just throws in these little like like liberal ideologies that you just wouldn't expect. It's fascinating. But the fact is that the situation in Ukraine today is completely different because it involves a forced change of identity. And the most despicable thing is that the Russians in Ukraine are being forced not only to deny their roots, generations of their ancestors, but also to believe that Russia is their enemy. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the path of forced assimilation, the formation of an ethnically pure Ukrainian state, aggressive towards Russia, <clears throat> is comparable in its consequences to the use of weapons of mass destruction against us. A eh, little overstatement there, but I see his point. As a result of such a harsh and artificial division of Russians and Ukrainians, the Russian people in all in all, may decrease by hundreds of thousands or even millions. They do have a, a shrinking population, I've read, so this is actually a real concern to the Russian people. Our spiritual unity has also been attacked. As in the days of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, a new ecclesiastical has been initiated. Initiated. The secular authorities, making no secret of their political aims, have blatantly interfered in church life and 
brought things to a split. To the seizure of churches, the beating of priests and monks, even extensive autonomy of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church while maintaining spiritual unity with the Moscow Patriarchate strongly displeases them. They have to destroy this prominent and centuries-old symbol of our kinship at all costs. I think it is also natural that the representatives of Ukraine over and over again vote against the UN General Assembly resolution condemning the glorification of Nazism. Marches and torchlift processions in honor of remaining war criminals from the SS units take place under the protection of the official authorities. Mazeppa, who betrayed everyone, Petlura, who paid for Polish patronage with Ukrainian lands, and Bandera, who collaborated with the Nazis, are ranked as national heroes. It's true. Sorry. Azov Battalion, everything we've been learning about. And keep in mind, this was written before the war, so like you can't say, oh, he, yeah, he's justifying all of this stuff after the fact. Like, no. This was six months prior, folks. Everything is being done to erase from the memory of young generations the names of genuine patriots and victors who have always been the pride of Ukraine. For the Ukrainians who fought in the Red Army, in partisan units, the Great Patriotic War was indeed a patriotic war because they were defending their home, their great common motherland. Over 2,000 soldiers became heroes of the Soviet Union. Among them are legendary pilot Ivan Kozidub, fearless sniper, defender of Odessa and Sevastopol, Lyudmila Pavlichenko, valiant guerrilla commander uh, Kovpak, this indomitable generation fought. Those people gave their lives for our future. For us, to forget their feet is to betray our grandfathers, mothers, and fathers. The anti-Russian project has been rejected by millions of Ukrainians. The people of Crimea and residents of Sevastopol made their historic choice, and people in the so Southeast peacefully tried to defend their stance. Yet all of them, including children, were labeled as separatists and terrorists. They were threatened with ethnic cleansing and the use of military force. That's all true. And the residents of Donetsk and Lugansk took up arms to defend their home, their language, and their lives. Were they left any other choice after the riots that swept through the cities of Ukraine after the horror and tragedy of May 2nd, 2014 in Odessa, where Ukrainian neo-Nazis burned people alive, making a new Katyn out of it? The same massacre was ready to be carried out by the followers of Bandera and Crimea, Sevastopol, Donetsk, and Lugansk. Even now, they do not abandon such plans. They are biding their time, but their time will not come. And he's drawing a red line now. The coup d'etat and the subsequent actions of the Kiev authorities inevitably provoked confrontation and civil war. The UN High Com Commissioner for Human Rights estimates that the to total number of victims in the conflict in Donbass has exceeded 13,000. That's more than I think have died in the war so far. Among them are the elderly and children. These are terrible and irreparable losses. Russia has done everything to stop fratricide. That's uh, murder amongst brothers. The Minsk agreements aimed at a peaceful settlement of the conflict in Donbass have been concluded. I am convinced that they still have no alternative. In any case, no one has withdrawn their signature from the Minsk package of measures or from their the relevant statements by the leaders of Normandy format countries. No one has initiated, initiated a review of the United Nations Security Council re resolution of February 2015. During official negotiations, especially after being reined in by Western partners, Ukraine's representatives regularly declare their full adherence to the Minsk agreement, but are in fact guided by a position of unacceptability. They do not intend to seriously discuss either the special status of Donbass or safeguards for the people living there. They prefer to exploit the image of the victim of external aggression and peddle Russophobia. They arrange bloody provocation in Donbass. In short, they attract the attention of external patrons and masters by all means. This is, this is still to this day, over six months later, while the war is going on, what is the included in Vladimir Putin's list of demands, that they have to recognize the independence of the Donbass. So 
you can't say that he wasn't. I mean, it, this it, it, like they say there was no provocation, there was no warning. Like this came out of nowhere. Like, well, whether or not you agree with his his argument here, clearly it's not out of nowhere. I mean, this dude's got decades and decades of historical examples as to why they made this case, and then the fact that the people who you know speak Russian and consider themselves Russian in the east of Ukraine believe that they would prefer to be part of Russia as opposed to Ukraine. It's just true. So, you know, for what it's worth, I'm not not justifying anything, just explaining that there are there are other perceptions of what's occurring there amongst the people that live there. And you, we probably ought to consider their opinions. Apparently, and I am becoming more and more convinced of this, Kiev simply does not need Donbass. Why? Because firstly, the inhabitants of these regions will never accept the order that they have tried and are trying to impose by force blockade and threats. And secondly, the outcome of both Minsk 1 and Minsk 2, which gave a real chance to peacefully restore the territorial integrity of Ukraine by coming to an agreement directly with the DPR and LPR with Russia, Germany, and France's mediators, contradicts the entire logic of the anti-Russia project. And it can only be sustained by the constant cultivation of the image of an internal and external enemy. And I would add, under the protection and control of the Western powers. Ding, ding, ding. And I'm going to prove some of this shit. So stay tuned. This is what is actually happening. First of all, we are facing the creation of a climate of fear in Ukrainian society. Aggressive rhetoric, indulging neo-Nazis and militariz militarizing the country. Along with that, we are witnessing not just complete dependence, but direct external control, including the supervision of the Ukrainian authorities, security services, and armed forces by foreign advisors. Also a fact, CIA advisors, I might add. Military development of the territory of Ukraine and deployment of NATO infrastructure. All true. It is no coincidence that the aforementioned flagrant law of an indigenous peoples was adopted under the cover of large-scale NATO exercises in Ukraine. This is also disguised for the takeover of the rest of the Ukrainian economy and the exploitation of its natural resources. The sale of agricultural land is not far off, and it is obvious who will buy it up. From time to time, Ukraine is indeed given financial resources and loans, but under their own conditions and pursuing their own interests with preferences and benefits for Western country or companies. By the way, who will pay these debts back? Apparently, it is assumed that this will have to be done not only by today's generation of Ukrainians, but also by their children, grandchildren, and probably great-grandchildren. Hey, welcome to the U.S. situation. The Western authors of the anti-Russia project set up the Ukrainian political system in such a way that presidents, members of parliament, and ministers would change, but the attitude of separation from an enmity with Russia would remain. Reaching peace was the main election slogan of the incumbent president. He came to power with this. The promises turned into out to be the promises turned out to be lies. Nothing has changed, and in some ways, the situation in Ukraine and around Donbas has even degenerated. <clears throat> In the anti-Russia project, there is no place either for sovereign Ukraine or for the political forces that are trying to defend its real independence. Those who talk about reconciliation in Ukrainian society, about dialogue, about finding a way out of the current impasse, are labeled as pro-Russian agents. Hey, that's me. <laughs> Again. For many people in Ukraine, the anti-Russia project is simply unacceptable, and there are millions of such people, but they are not allowed to raise their heads. They have had their legal opportunity to defend their point of view, in fact, taken away from them. They are intimidated, driven underground. Not only are they persecuted for their convictions, for the spoken word, for the open expression of their position, but they are also killed. Murderers, as a rule, go unpunished. Today, the right patriot of Ukraine 
is only the one who hates Russia. Moreover, the entire Ukrainian statehood, as we understand it, is proposed to be further built exclusively on this idea, hate and anger, as world history has repeatedly proved this, are a very shaky foundation for sovereignty, fraught with many serious risks and dire consequences. All the subterfuges associated with the anti-Russia project are clear to us, and we will never allow our historical territories and people close to us living there to be used against Russia. And to those who will undertake such an attempt, I would like to say this, say this way they will destroy their own country. The incumbent authorities in Ukraine like to refer to Western experience, seeing it as a model to follow. Just have a look at how Austria and Germany, the USA and Canada live next to each other, close in ethnic composition, culture, in fact, sharing one language. They remain sovereign states with their own interests, with their own foreign policy, but this does not prevent them from the closest integration or allied relations. They have very conditional transparent borders, and when crossing them, the citizens feel at home. They create families, study, work, do business. Incidentally, so do millions of those born in Ukraine now, who now live in Russia. We see them as our own close people. Russia is open to dialogue with Ukraine and ready to discuss the most complex issues, but it is important for us to understand that our partner is defending its national interests, but not serving someone else's, and it is and is not a tool in someone else's hands to fight against us. Hint, hint. You know exactly where he's going with that. We respect the Ukrainian language and traditions. We respect Ukrainians' desire to see their country free, safe, and prosperous. I am confident that true sovereignty of Ukraine is possible, only in part partnership with Russia. So he's basically saying, you guys can be free, but you have to be friendly to us, which with them being a neighbor, it you know, it's a reasonable request. I don't know if it's a reasonable demand, but it's a reasonable request. Our spiritual, human, and civilizational ties formed for centuries and have their origins in the same sources. They have been hardened by common trials, achievements, and victories. Our kinship has been transmitted from generation to generation. It is in the hearts and the memory of people living in modern Russia and Ukraine in the blood ties that unite millions of our families. Together, we have always been and will be many times stronger and more successful. For we are one people. Today, these words may be perceived by some people with hostility. With hostility. They can be interpreted in many possible ways. Yet, many people will hear me, and I will say one thing. Russia has never been and will never be anti-Ukraine. And what Ukraine will be, it is up to its citizens to decide. Oof. That's a really, that's a fascinating last paragraph. I'm going to read it again. Today, these words may be perceived by some people with hostility. They can be interpreted in many possible ways. Basically saying... Yeah, there's a little hostility here, but he's being very clear when he finishes this out that it's not directed towards the people of Ukraine, but rather the leadership there. Where he says, yet many people will hear me and I will say one thing. Russia has never been and will never be anti-Ukraine. And what Ukraine will be is it is up to its citizens to decide. Essentially saying uh, the same thing that, you know, Lindsey Graham and all these lunatics on Twitter over the past couple of weeks have been saying about how they want to take out Putin and how the, the Russian people should take out Putin. Essentially, he was saying the same thing here, but he wasn't going that extreme because he's not as crazy as them. Or he's just saying, like, it's up to this, it's up to the Ukrainian people to decide, like, do you guys want to have this leadership that that leads you foul, that makes it so that we have this antagonistic relationship that breakdowns that that breaks down these bonds that we've had for thousands of years. I mean as I've said, not justifying the invasion. I, I, I'm anti-war. Like, I don't even know why I have to say this. I am anti-war. <laughs> but 
from a geopolitical standpoint, it makes perfect sense that as NATO has consistently uh, encroached on the borders of Russia, and now you have a political establishment within Ukraine that is anti-Russian, um, whether or not they become a member of NATO or the United Nations, uh, you know, this is this is obviously antagonistic towards Russia and economically detrimental, as well as the resources that they have in Ukraine, which include, um, you know, ports for shipping, which is vitally important, uh, as well as minerals. I've read uh, the New York Times had an article stating that they have like massive lithium deposits and things like that, uh, that are important in renewable energy batteries. So it's, it's again, what I'm trying to get at here is this is all tremendously complex, tremendously. And the oversimplification, you know, the, the fact that people are willing to, you know, take this hardline stand, stand with Ukraine, you know, it's like, do you know any of this? Do you? Like, sincerely, do you know any of this? Because if you don't, from which, from what, you know, intellectual basis are you coming to this conclusion that we should be risking World War III on behalf of what I believe is clearly a corrupt government in Ukraine? Again, that doesn't say that the government in Russia isn't also corrupt. It's just simply saying, are we, are we willing to risk nuclear holocaust to defend the Ukrainian government? Because ultimately, it seems as if Russia itself has a very antagonistic relationship with the Ukrainian government, as well as the, the Nazi forces that exist in their military. But they don't seem to have tremendous anger towards the Ukrainian people. At least they're not publicizing it, if that's the case. And I've never seen that anywhere. You know, I, I, I've talked to some Russian people about this. And for the most part, Russians seem to like Ukrainians. It's not always the... The same way, though, it seems as if many of the Ukrainians hate the Russians. So I don't know. I just wanted to to have you guys, you know, understand that there is there was a lead up to this. You know, there, there this wasn't out of the blue. And I think that the same way it's important to have read Bin Laden's manifesto when he attacked us on 9-11. Like, doesn't justify what he did. What he did was fucking evil. <laughs> like, but don't you want to know why? I'd like to know why when someone does something terrible to thousands of people that like, why? Why do they do it? Do you have any level of inquisitiveness? Like, don't you, don't you want to know these answers? It's just, it's fascinating to me that people just, and they're like, nah, I'll just take the narrative that the media is giving me. Russia bad, Ukraine good, Putin evil. Zelensky holy that's all it is it's as simple as that leave it there start world war three per Zelensky an actor who's corrupt as fuck who's with the Panama Papers has demonstrated definitively that he's got millions of dollars in offshore accounts come on it's like no if you don't know all of this shut the fuck up <laughs> like just shut up and you know, I don't even talk about it that much. It, it, the only reason I talk about it is because there's such a lack of actual historic back, like pinning to what what's actually transpiring there. Like what, if you don't know any of it, from which grounds are you saying, yeah, we stand with Ukraine?
So what I'm saying is, shut the fuck up. Okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead and talk. Go ahead and run your Ukrainian flag emoji. I don't really give a shit. I just, I just think it's a mistake. I really do. I think that you are, you are being used. And if you know it, then okay, go, go along with it. I don't care. If you have family in Ukraine, sure. I get it. Um, if you don't, if you don't know you're being played, maybe consider some of this historical backdrop before you come to the conclusion that you should risk nuclear war with U.S. involvement. And I wanted to make a quick side note, too, that, you know, the fact that we are already funding and arming Ukrainian military, which includes the Azov Battalion, even though they've said, oh, they're not funding the Azov Battalion. It's like, oh, money's not fungible now. Interesting. Um, but we are. Billions. 15 billion in the latest package. Um, not to mention, God knows how much in military support. Not to mention the fact that we now know for a fact that the CIA was training their forces in the prior years leading up to this conflict. And that, you know, the U.S. government knew that this was coming. Why else were they training up Ukrainian forces to be able to fight this battle? Like, this was all a lead up. And, it, and it, none of it's a surprise. Like, it's, there was year after year progression of this divide amongst these two nations. And at every turn, almost every turn, the U.S. government, the State Department, the CIA, Hillary Clinton, bunch of bunch of the scumbags that we all hate were involved in this. They were involved in the Maidan revolution. They were involved in the coup. Um, and they were involved with training the troops that are now fighting this war and now arming them and now funding them. So this is a proxy war. It's a proxy war between the U.S. government and the Russian government. And the only difference is that instead of using our troops, we're using Ukrainians. Very noble of us, right? It's not okay. It's not okay. And, and I wanted to make this point very clear. There's a lot of argument right now as to whether or not we should be putting boots on the ground in Ukraine to support them. I want to go back. Like the What the argument ought to be is that the weaponry that we're shipping to the Ukrainian government is a provocative act. In my opinion, it is an act of war. And if any foreign country were to arm, you know, our enemy combatants in any of our wars over the years, we would view it as such. And I think that, you know, I think that uh, Iran may have armed so, like at least it was rumored. I don't know if it was actually true. It could have been wartime propaganda, but I think it was rumored that they were arming, you know, ISIS or they were arming Al Qaeda or, or the uh, I don't know whichever side we were fighting in Iraq. That uh, oh, many different sides that we were fighting in Iraq, and and many of the American neocons were saying, "Oh, well, that's an act of war, and we should go to war against Iran." Well, why why can't Russia feel the same way? You know, we're arming them with very high-tech stuff and billions and billions of dollars. Like, what difference is it? What difference is it that the, the human body that's actually firing these weapons, like, if they don't have the weapons, they can't really fight. So how is it not a declaration of war on Russia by the United States government for what we've already done? I think it is. And I think that's dangerous. 
because they have nukes, thousands of them, like 6,000 nukes. Are you comfortable with that? I'm really not. Like, I could see a better libertarian argument for arming and funding the people of Hong Kong against the CCP when they cracked down on them two years ago. I see no argument. Truly, I don't. I see no argument for us to be arming and funding the Ukrainian government, as corrupt as it is, especially after we implemented a coup there. I think it's completely immoral and stunningly dangerous, reckless. It is reckless. And if, if I had my druthers, the libertarian community would not be debating whether or not we put boots on the ground. We would be demanding that they withdraw funding and they withdraw training and weaponry and all CIA operations to foment this war, this conflict. That's what we ought to be demanding. If you care about peace, that's what you ought to be demanding. And we ought to be demanding that the people that are responsible for it be brought up on charges. And ultimately, the only involvement that the American government should have from this point forward, if any at all, is to charge those people and to assist in peacemaking if they can. And if we can't trust the politicians, the diplomats to go and do that for us, then we shouldn't be involved in all at all. We should just tell Ukraine, we're not supporting you anymore. You can decide from there what you want to do. And I would argue they would almost certainly come to a peace treaty with Putin in short order and save countless Ukrainian lives. So if you care about that, seems like the answer to me. So now I'm going to prove to you, I'm going to prove to you how sinister this stuff is. Because a lot of people don't talk about it and they don't even know about it. And I have gathered quite a few bits of information to demonstrate definitively that this is a PSYOP. You ready? Here we go. An article from responsiblestatecraft.org. Never heard of it, but it says Army of Ukraine lobbyists behind unprecedented Washington blitz. An analysis of FARA filings show they contacted members of Congress and others over 10,000 times. Okay. Story was co published with The Intercept on February 11, 2022. So a little over a month ago, right as the war was started. Starting. As tensions with Russia reach a boiling, boiling point, lobbyists from Ukraine are working feverishly to shape the U.S. response. Firms working for Ukrainian interests have inundated congressional offices, think tanks, and journalists with more than 10,000 messages and meetings in 2021. More than 10,000 in 2021. It's before this war. So did it come out of nowhere? No. They were already doing this work. Come on. According to an analysis of Foreign Agent... Uh, Agents Registration Act, filings for a forthcoming report from the Quincy Institute. To put this extraordinary campaign into perspective, the Saudi lobby, known for being one of the largest foreign lobbies in D.C., reported 2,800 contacts, barely a quarter of what Ukraine's agents have done. I mean, this is insane. Russia has positioned more than 10, uh, 100,000 troops on Ukraine's border, and just yesterday it began conducting military drills with Belarus on Ukraine's border in what some fear could be the lead-up to an invasion. As the numbers of, uh, and now we know, it became an invasion. And we should have known, to be honest. This is one thing I actually disagree with Scott on. Um, once those troops were on that border, the amount of millions of dollars that it would have required for that drill, if it had not been an invasion, I don't think that they would have done that. I really don't. 
I don't think they had done that in the past where they moved a hundred thousand troops to the border. Like it was pretty evident in hindsight. I mean, granted I have hindsight as the advantage, so I'm not dismissing Scott's take at all. Um, I'm sure he thought that it was unlikely and I, I tended to agree, but when you think about it, like you don't move a hundred thousand troops unless you're serious. As the number of Russian troops on Ukraine's border has grown, so too have the efforts of Ukraine's agents in the United States to secure U.S. and NATO military support. Yeah, exactly. So they don't even need to be a member of NATO to essentially lobby for Article 5 protection where, like, we would defend them. More specifically, the far-reaching campaign has been focused on stopping the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which Ukrainian officials argue is as much of a threat to their security as Russian troops. If completed, the pipeline would allow Russia to export natural gas directly to Germany and the rest of Europe, jeopardizing the billions Ukraine currently earns from transiting Russian gas to Europe. Now, you notice one of the first things Biden did when it came to sanctioning Russia during this conflict was to double down on the fact that they will never get the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And for those that don't know, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was just a pipeline from Russia to the EU without having to go through Ukraine. So Russia was trying to, and and Ukraine gets billions of dollars from their fees on that pipeline that goes through Ukraine. So this was a huge financial imperative. And it was a choke point that basically forced Russia to do as NATO, the US, and the Ukrainians demanded because... They have to get. They have to be able to export export their biggest export, which is oil and gas. So yeah, this was uh, just one aspect of of demonstrating that this is not out of the blue at all, <laughs> and it's absurd that people are even pretending like it is. Now this is going to be a deeper dive from Pedro Gonzalez, who writes for HumanEvents.com. It's called "The Fog of Information War in Ukraine." And it was March 15th, so this was just about 10 days ago. The Western intelligence apparatus has been busy in Ukraine. With financing and collaboration through various non-governmental organizations, that's NGOs, it won the information war with the help of Ukrainian media before Russia ever fired a shot in February. Even the country's newest publication, like the Kiev Independent, have received support and funding from institutions associated with the CIA. In most cases, the outlet, these outlets have propagandized to the beat of the West war drums rather, rather than inform the public. Since the Independent launched last November, it has amassed nearly 2 million Twitter followers and become a main artery of information in the war. Far from being objective, its writers tend to snap at those who can contradict their narratives. Elia Ponomarenko, the Independent's defense reporter, even declared himself brothers in arms with Azov Battalion, a unit known for committing war crimes against civilians in eastern Ukraine, according to journalist Michael Tracy. Ponomarenko amassed almost a million followers in less than two weeks. How do you do that? You have big money back in you. That kind of growth is hard and impressive, but The Independent also has some special connections. No shit. The publication has a growing subscriber base today, but according to the Committee to Protect Journalists, it was created with an emergency grant from the European Endowment for Democracy, a spinoff of the National Endowment for Democracy. What is the NED? On the surface, it's an NGO that promotes civil society worldwide by, among other things, sponsoring and providing training for journalists and activists directly or ind indirectly. The reality, however, is different. Here's the truth. Here's ProPublica's characterization. The National Endowment for Democracy was established by Congress, in effect, to take over the CIA's covert propaganda efforts. But unlike the CIA, the NED promotes U.S. policy and interests openly. The NED's co-founder, Alan Weinstein, admitted as much, quote, a lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA, end quote. 
He said in an interview with the Washington Post entitled Innocence Abroad, the New World of Spyless Coups. So they're just they just do it in open now. That's what they're doing. So instead of us going like, oh, this is black ops CIA. No, it's open ops CIA. They've just replaced all of their actions with NGOs so they can do it above board. It's so obvious. Come on. The biggest difference is that when such activities are done overtly, the flat potential, i.e. embarrass or embroil the CIA in controversy, is close to zero, Weinstein said. Recall that 1967 Ramparts magazine humiliated the agency by exposing that it had turned the National Student Association's international activities into an arm of United States foreign policy through undercover financing and secret collaboration. Now, openness is its own protection, as Weinstein put it. Put simply, the NED uses democracy movements to bring foreign governments into harmony with Washington's interests. That's why this is why they constantly say we must protect democracy. Do you get it now? It's not about liberal democracy and having people's voting rights. They can now use this as, you know, cover for their actual interests which is Washington's interest, which is big business's interest, which is not your interest. How that looks in practice takes different forms, including regime change, but a constant is formulating and managing narratives, which is why the NAD has long funded media and activist groups. A recent report published by Declassified UK uh, noted that the NAD paid out more than $3 million between 2016 and 2021 to outlets like Bellingcat and the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Echoing Weinstein, a former CIA officer, told Declassify that the NED is a vehicle for U.S. government propaganda. <laughs> Let's make it a little bit more clear. The EED's Facebook page refers to the Independent as a partner and shows a close relationship with the NED. <laughs> in September 2021, a profile of the Independent's chief editor, Olga Rodenko, appeared in ProMarket, a publication of the Stigler Center of University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Rodenko was visiting the school for a journalism development program. According to ProMarket, she is also a board member of the Media Development Foundation, an NGO that has received at least 20, 225 grand from the NED. You won't find that without a digital archive because the NED's records of funding projects in Ukraine was either moved or deleted recently. The archive page shows that from 2014 to the present, the NED has granted $22, or $22 million through 334 awards to Ukraine. However, since the change, the NED only allows users to search back to 2017, five years ago. <clears throat> covering up their tracks much yes they are oh, come on this is so obvious damn it i can't believe that more people are not aware of this stuff it drives me crazy the mdf's facebook page features several posts referencing partnerships exchange programs and training affiliated with the ned that often conclude with an appreciative variation of to our partners national endowment for democracy without them there would be nothing one post reads there is a donor national endowment for democracy who is very invested in the development of ukrainian media Indeed, the MDF's mission statement on the NED's archived page also notes that, quote, it will maintain and expand the KievPost.com website and, quote, another key source of propaganda in the Ukraine-Russian war. According to its LinkedIn page, the MDF was founded in 2013. That was the same year that a Western-backed coup in Ukraine got underway and when the EED launched, oh, and when the EED launched, the NED and EED have worked in tandem toward the same liberal internationalist vision ever since. Understanding their role in Ukraine's political affairs and the media's complicity helps explain how we got to the current crisis. Hell yes, it does. Thank you so much, Pedro, for doing this work. 
Modeled after the NED, the EED's establishment was initially proposed in 2011 by Wrocław <clears throat> Sikorski, a Polish journalist and a member of the European Parliament. Speaking to donors last year, he said the foundation would help develop democratic processes in the whole EU neighborhood in Belarus, Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Russia. The Arab Spring had, has just been nurtured by an array of institutes financed through the NED. So that's why this is a color revolution. This is why Dave Smith and I describe it as such. It's We've seen it. It's been happening in all these different countries. And it's all done basically above board by the CIA funding media operations to propagandize people into rising up and then in the American people into supporting it or looking, you know, turning a blind eye. Could it be more obvious? Sikorsky is also the husband of Anne Applebaum, a Polish-American staff writer for The Atlantic who sits on the NED's board of directors. The ED, and by the way, I think Anne Applebaum had a podcast two days ago with Hillary Clinton. The ED's Polish connection isn't an accident. While serving as director of the CIA, James L. Pavitt declared Poland is the 51st state. A former CIA official told the New York Times, Americans have no idea. <laughs> On paper, a sovereign Poland led, to, led the charge to create the ED and is, it is bankrolled by the European Commission, but that arguably just provides a layer of plausible deniability for its friends in DC. It's not hard to connect the blob to the NED and EED through characters like Victoria Newland, fuck the EU, who currently serves as President Joe Biden's undersecretary for political affairs. A board member of the NED until last year, Newland is married to Robert Kagan, leading advocate of liberal interventionism. From 2018 to 2019, she served as CEO of the Center for a New American Security, a conflict of interest disguised as a think tank that has received funding from every major defense contractor, Wall Street's biggest banks, and several foreign governments. Her career also spans several presidential administrations. She was a staffer under President Bill Clinton from 1993 to 96. Between 03 to 05, Newland played an influential role during the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq and uh, as a key advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney. She acted as U.S. ambassador to NATO in Brussels from 2005 to 08 and helped exacerbate tensions between Georgia and Russia. And she also led to the coup in 2014. This, chi this chick is unbelievable. If you don't know about Victoria Newland, like, she should be very high on your list of politicians that have destroyed this country. For real. Like, awful. Evil. Newland is most notorious for her part in Ukraine's 2013-14 Maidan uprising, a coup that saw the country's government replaced with one approved by the Obama administration. The NED was key in that $5 billion effort to, to flip Ukraine. Carl Gershman, who served as the NED's president from its founding in 1984 until 2021, called Ukraine the biggest prize in September 2013 in the Washington Post. Jerzy Poniatowski, the EED's first executive director and a former state sec uh, secretary in Poland's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, was just as candid as Gersh Gershman and Weinstein. Asked if the EED had a right to meddle in the affairs of foreign countries, Poniatowski said during an interview with Die Welt, Die Welt in January 2013, we may not have the formal right to act everywhere, but we can. <laughs> you gotta love the brazenness of all this uh it's like klaus schwab with his build back better stuff he's like yeah you'll own nothing and you'll be happy uh the ed became operational in the summer of 2013 just before the protests oust ukraine's democratically elected but insufficiently compliant government began with the help of the u.s state department where newland was assistant secretary of state for european and eurasian affairs Newland's role in the regime change has led to her being called the architect of American influence in Ukraine. 
look no further than Victoria Newland. Victoria F. Newland. The F stands for fuck you forever. Scum of the earth. But Newland's coup wouldn't have been possible without the help of Ukrainian politicians Ole Tchanibok uh, and the right sector, which emerged as a confederation of paramilitary groups during the protests in November 2013. <coughs> its leader, Dmitro Yorosh, served as an aide to Ukrainian diplomats and politician Valentin Narodachenko from late 06 to early 2010 and from 14 to 15. Nali, Nali Vychenko headed the security service of Ukraine, essentially the Ukrainian KGB successor. Newland referred to Charlie broke in a leaked phone call as one of the big three opposition leaders on the outside who could help set up a new government approved by the Obama administration. The Obama, uh, the Obama administration, which had Joe Biden as vice president. So let's not pretend as if Joe isn't dirty as hell in all this. Not to mention Hunter and his dealings and laptop and everything else. Good God. It's so, so corrupt. Led by Arseny Yatsenyuk, she refers to him as Yats, on the inside. A separate but related exchange between EU Foreign Minister Catherine Ashton and Estonia's Foreign Minister Ermas Payet further connected Johnny Buck and Newland. The two were involved in an inquiry to determine who was responsible for the violence during the protests. Police and civilians had been killed by sniper fire, and Ashton assumed it was then President Viktor Yanukovych who was largely to blame. However, Payet's, Payet's intelligence suggested quote, that behind the snipers, it was not Yanukovych, but it was somebody from the new coalition, end quote. In other words, an outside group had orchestrated the shootings on both sides to sow chaos. That revolution was started with a false flag. I'm just going to say it because this ain't on YouTube and I can tell you the truth. It was a false flag backed by the CIA, the State Department, and most importantly, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and Newland, scum of the earth. The shootings were central to the protest because the victims' deaths were propagandized by the media as evidence of Yanukovych's tyranny. In their honor, a, uh, a national memorial and an order of Ukraine were created, but not everything was as it seemed. Right sector militants were blamed for fanning the flames of violence. Some alleged that they, these groups were supported by the West. Snipers were also trained in Poland as a favor to Washington, said Polish politician Jonas Korwin Mikke. In an interview with Wirtual uh, Napolska, when asked for evidence, he replied, I am sitting in an European parliament next to Mr. Ermas Payet, the Estonian foreign minister, who admitted in an interview with Baroness Catherine Ashton of Opoland that it was our people who shot on the Maidan. The democratic activists who participated in this coup were trained in Poland, and this is no secret. All orders were issued either from the Embassy of the United States or from the Embassy of the European Union. The Polish Ministry uh, of Foreign Affairs denied all allegations. Unbelievable. All orders were issued either from the Embassy of the United States or from the Embassy of the EU. <laughs> That's just incredible. Yakimenko also claimed that uh, Nalevachevko Yorosh's old boss and friend had collaborated with U.S. intelligence while running the SBU. CIA officials worked in the Ukrainian Security Service under Nalevachenko. The personal personnel, uh, the personal files of SBU officials were provided to them. Yakimenko said, notably, uh, Nalev, who replaced Yakimenko as head of the SBU after the coup, did not deny the possibility of the West backing the protests and said that the U.S. had an interest in exacerbating the situation in Ukraine. 
In the end, Ashton and Pyatt did not pursue the inquiry further, but Estonia's foreign ministry confirmed the call's authenticity after it was leaked and sparked a scandal. Today, Yarosh in the primary is the primary commander of the Ukrainian Volunteer Army. So he got his promotion for doing his dirty work. On January 9, 2013, in the months leading up to the coup, Newland and the NED helped instigate, Ashton announced, as co-chair of the FEED's Board of Governors, <clears throat> that the new initiative, largely inspired by the U.S.-funded National Endowment for Democracy, was beginning to take shape. Directive, a media network focused on EU policies, noted that Ukraine's leaders viewed the EED at the time with hostility because they said it provoked unrest and weakness and weakens the country. Nevertheless, Ashton declared in Brussels that the endowment comes at a very timely moment, as 2013 will be a crucial year for democratic transitions, in particular in the EU's neighborhood. They knew, man. They knew. They knew because they were making it happen. Could it be, could it be any more obvious? The European Endowment for Democracy can play a very important role, she added, by working directly with those in the field who are striving for democracy. And now, as we know... Democracy is just code word for doing what the fuck we tell them. And by offering flexible, non-bureaucratic and dedicated procedures that are tailored to the needs and demands on the ground. The journalists and the activists trained by intelligence-connected NGOs were so instrumental in shaping Western perceptions on the revolution that it has been called the journalist uprising. But the myth of a democratic Ukraine is largely an NGO fantasy. The reality is that the country continues to be plundered by oligarchs and foreign governments, neither of which care much for the people of Ukraine. Now the Kiev Independent continues to work uh, the work of manufacturing and managing consensus. As troops massed on Ukraine's border, Rodenko criticized Zelensky specifically as the West megaphone diplomacy, generally in the New York Times. She said Russia had been waging a war in eastern Ukraine since 2014 and warned that should Zelensky make any concessions to Russia, it would likely bring hundreds of thousands of people to the streets, threatening him with the fate of Viktor Yanukovych, the president overthrown by the revolution in 2014. Rudenko curiously omitted the United States' involvement in the revolution. Nor did she mention that the war in eastern Ukraine was triggered by Newland's coup when anti-government separatist groups declared independence from the Washington-approved regime. Indeed, there appears to be little daylight between Rudenko's publication and D.C. liberal interventionists. The independent uncritically amplifies President Volodymyr Zelensky's false claims of Russian nuclear terrorism and demands for a no-fly zone, all of which, if acted upon, would result in a catastrophic escalation of war. That's correct. It's no surprise, then, that CIA Director Bill Burns recently told lawmakers that Russia is losing the information war. But what he really means, though, is that a false Manichean narrative has emerged to absolve the West of all wrongdoing and interest towards nuclear war, supposedly all in the name of, quote, democracy. But democracy in Ukraine started a civil war that has raged for nearly a decade, with more than 14,000 dead before Russia ever or even crossed the Rubicon. It meant turning Ukraine into the poorest country in Europe and using it as a proxy in the West's new Cold War, for which it is now paying dearly. Okay? You got it? Good work, Pedro, man. Phenomenal. I'd love to have you on to talk about this further, because I think you nailed it. I'm not going to read this entire one, because I'm sure you're getting... You, you got the point. At this point, you understand. Like, You know what this is. <laughs> It's not what you're being propagandized with. Uh, the truth here is pretty evident. But one last source so that you know that I'm not bullshitting you. Mintpressnews.com says, Ukraine's propaganda war, international PR firms, DC lobbyists, and CIA cutouts. Dan Cohen reveals a network of foreign strategists, Washington, DC lobbyists, and intelligence-linked media outlets behind Ukraine's public relations blitz. 
since the Russian offensive inside Ukraine commenced on February 24th, Ukrainian military has cultivated the image of a plucky little army standing up to the Russian Goliath. To bolster the perception of Ukrainian military metal, Kiev has churned out a steady stream of sophisticated propaganda aimed at stirring public and official support for Western countries. The campaign includes language guides, key messages, and, a hundred, and hundreds of propaganda posters, some of which contain fascist imagery and even pro, uh, praise neo-Nazi leaders. Behind Ukraine's public relations effort is an army of foreign political strategists, Washington, D.C. lobbyists, and a network of intelligence-leaked media outlets. Ukraine's propaganda strategy earned its praise from a NATO commander who told the Washington Post they are really excellent in stratcom, media, info ops, and also psyops. <laughs> The Post ultimately uh, conceded that Western officials say that while they cannot independently verify much of the information that Kiev puts out about uh, out about the evolving battlefield situation, including casualty figures for both sides, it nonetheless represents highly effective stratcom. Key to the propaganda effort is an international legion of public relations firms working directly with Ukraine's Ministry of Foreign Affairs to wage information warfare. According to the industry news site PR Week, the initiative was launched by an anonymous figure who allegedly founded Ukraine-based public relations firm. <coughs> George Soros. <laughs> uh, quote, from the first hour of war, we decided to join the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to help them distribute the official sources to show the truth. End quote. The nameless figure told PR Week. This is a hybrid war, the mix of bloodily struggling fight with a huge disinformation and fake campaign led by Russia. According to the anonymous figure, more than 150 public relations firms have joined the propaganda blitz. And he goes on to show hundreds of like these posters that they put together uh, to propagandize both us and the Ukrainian people. So enough of that one. You get the point. You're being lied to. Okay. You're being fucking lied to. So there you have it. Okay. Sorry. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. I feel like it's better to know the truth than not though. When World War III and nuclear fucking holocaust is the potential risk of you not being read in on what's actually happened, why we're here. And I haven't even gone through, like, I've talked about, I've talked about this with Scott, with Laura Logan, with Dave Smith. Like, if you haven't got the point yet about how, you know, NATO's expansion to Russia's border also led to this. But on top of that. You have the CIA, Victoria Newland, all these people that are working for years, decades even, to, and now feverishly working over the past couple of years to create a propaganda campaign to get the Ukrainian people to be willing to fight against Russia. And also our own media working to propagandize us to be willing to fund and arm them in their fight in a proxy war against Russia. That's what this is. Crystal fucking clear. No argument. Okay? <laughs> I know I know libertarians like to argue, but good God, it could it be any more clear to you after all this. Like, so part of the reason I did this is not just because I want you to be more well-informed, but I also want you to be well-informed enough that you can take a real stand here. Take a stand early when it matters. You know, like, May 2020, when lockdowns were first coming down. Had you, had you had the resources to know how catastrophic it would be and how the vaccine wouldn't actually save you and waiting for it was a suicide mission, you probably would have talked a little bit more passionately in opposition to lockdowns and vaccine mandates and 
all of the insanity that transpired over the past two years. Well, now you have that opportunity today. But instead of preventing lockdowns and your child's mental health degrading, you have the chance to potentially stop or prevent nuclear war. Is that, is that not a big enough carrot to get you motivated? So you know the truth. You know what it is. Speak out, please. And I don't want to leave you on such a, a dire note. So I decided I'm going to do a, uh, a breakdown of a TED Talk, which is very short, but horrifically bad and hilariously bad. So I want to break it down with you guys. The way you design software influences the behavior of the people using it. Everyone uses the money app. Now, this is not how it came. Now, this is not how I came to spend most, most of my time working in monetary systems. That started back in 2012 when I was wondering, why is it so hard to solve our climate change problem? We knew what was going on. We knew what had to be done and we had the technology to do it. Or from a software design angle, we identified the problem, programmed the solution, and all we had to do was run the program. But that's still not really happening. Why? Money. There's just not enough money to do what needs to be done. It will hurt the economy. But money is 100% man-made. That's kind of like saying, we don't have enough Pokemons in order to end poverty. So I started looking at money the way I do at software. How is it designed? For most people, very badly. For one, there are only a limited number of sources, namely the banks. Now, some of you will be thinking work, but work does not create money. It transfers money from the employer to the employee. It's a distribution system. Banks, they create money every time someone takes out a loan. Now, the first time I read that, I thought I had landed on some conspiracy theory side because. <laughs> so I just want to. All right. So this is a TED talk. It's by. Uh... Steph Kuipers, who's fucking retarded. <laughs> the TED Talk is called Man Made Money. And it is from a couple years ago, like five years ago. And it's just so, it, like, the ignorance is so beautiful off top where he's like, so I read somewhere that all money is created by central banks. <laughs> he's like, and I thought it was a conspiracy theory. Oh, Oh, did you? And then, and then his his bold statement of like, uh, we just don't have enough money, but money is man made, so men can make more money. <laughs> it's like, like with every new iteration of of a technology, like a technological innovation, the same awful ideas of communism or Marxism are tried again in the new realm. Thinking that like, oh, now we can, now we understand that, that this is how money works. So we could just make more of it and it's going to solve all the problems, including global warming. This is, this is really bad, but it gets funnier and hang in there. Because to me, this was just too ridiculous to be true. After some digging, I found the same statement in a document published by the Central Bank of England. Now, these guys should know what you're talking about, right? So there you have it. Money is created by banks. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just so funny. He's like, so I, I didn't believe it, but then <laughs> I read it from the central bank in England, and uh, that's a pretty good source. So I'm pretty sure that's how money's made. It's like, bitch, it ain't a secret. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, of course they make the money. What are you talking? About? You're like, what is he? What did he? Where did he think it came from? Besides that, like, of course it came from central banks. I guess the government's like whatever. It's the same difference.
which makes them the source of money. But they are fenced sources. You cannot just walk into a bank and say, can I have some money? And expect them to give it to you. Unless you're a bank robber, of course, but that strategy doesn't always work either. Banks will only create money for you if you can bring back more than you took out. That's called interest. Just let that sink in. <laughs> a bank will create money for you if you bring back more than they created. <laughs> First off, not all banks get their money from the printing press. You know, historically, many of the banks, like credit unions and things like that, they take in deposits. And the reason that they have to get more than they give out is for the risk of loss, as well as profit and to operate their building and to you know pay their staff and things like that. You have to make a profit. You're a business. There's nothing nefarious about that. Uh, so his assessment that all of the money forever has always come from central banks exclusively. Um, and that's, that's why they have to get a return on their investment. They're just printing it and then lending it out. Today, that's largely true, but that hasn't always been the case. I just wanted to make that point. But how are we supposed to pay for that interest if money is created by banks through loans? Who the hell created this app? I can imagine most people are not very willing to share their money. Can I have some money? Sorry, no can do. I have to bring it back to the bank. But money is 100% man-made. That means the app can be rewritten. <laughs> and that opens up a lot of possibilities. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it, it's just like, this is the justification for modern monetary theory, MMT. Um, and they're just retrying Marxist ideology, but with a new iteration of technology. That's exactly what this is. And they, and they have TED Talks where they let literally brain-dead human beings stand on stage. And I hate to drag a bald guy as a fellow bald, but come on, man. You're not a genius. You just discovered five years ago that central banks print money. <laughs> You should, you should not be allowed to speak to people. No freedom of speech for you, sir. Software design always starts with a goal. What do we use money for? Exchanging value. Now, some of you will be thinking saving for a rainy day. True. But you'll want to trade it in for something else eventually. Having the money has no value in itself when no one is willing to give you something for it. Just try buy a coffee with a non-known foreign currency and you'll see what I mean. It's when money exchanges hands, when it moves, that value is created. No. <laughs> value is not created when money exchanges hands. That would imply that if you were to barter, if you were to trade good for goods, that there would be no value there. Or that when you create something, there's no value there. Yeah, value is created when you actually produce something. And then there's a market demand for it. And then you're able to trade it. The value is not created when you transfer the money. I'm sorry, that's just flatly fucking stupid. So basically, we want to use money to exchange value. Now, what if we could design the money app in such a way that we also get rid of poverty and that things like education, healthcare, and taking care of the environment don't have budget problems anymore? That would create a better world, wouldn't it? This is easier than you think when you're creating the money app. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> oh, Christ. I just, like... That we have, we have to do better. Oh, we have to do better with, with teaching people about economics. We just have to. It's so important. You can't have, like, if you had a well-educated populace when it comes to economics, dudes like this would be laughed off the stage. They wouldn't even be invited because everyone would know this is suicide. This doesn't work. They've tried it. Hello, USSR, <laughs> since we were talking about that earlier.
Since we choose how the app works, we can just create money for the things we need. We simply create money for education, healthcare, and the environment, for everything that helps build a better society. Poverty can be solved by creating a steady income stream for every living person on the planet. Basic income without the financing problems. All debt free. And yes, we can do this because this is software and we are writing it. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you can't. No, you fucking can't. You can't. Okay. <laughs> Keep going. We also have to destroy money. Continuously creating it would just make it lose its value and freak out every single economist on the planet. Hey, at least he's willing to acknowledge that inflation is possibly real. He still kind of says it as if he doesn't believe it, but anyways. They call it inflation. It's an easy problem to solve, though. No, no, it's not an easy problem to solve. I mean, it's an easy problem in the sense that you can hike interest rates to break the back of inflation as they did in the 1980s, driving us into a very severe recession. They could do that today, driving us into a depression. But it's not easy to stop once it's started, and that's just fucking stupid. Excessive hoarding creates a rampant inequality we can witness today. If we tackle that by implementing a tax on money hoarding, and we destroy the money collected from that tax, we don't only take care of inflation, we also get rid of extreme inequality. <laughs> so his, his incredible revelatory discovery is that if you steal money from the rich and destroy their wealth, everyone will be better off. <laughs> Carl, Karl Marx, reincarnate. Now, that means there is a limit to what you can hold on to. But remember, the security of savings has now been replaced by the security of a never-ending income stream. Currently, even in Belgium, where I'm from, and which is a rich country by all means, almost a quarter of the population is struggling to make ends meet. I believe we can create an economy where everyone can thrive. So do the people I work with. We have dubbed it haponomy. Reprogramming our monetary system just might be the fastest way to create a fairer, happier world. Haponomy. So it's a happy economy. <laughs> he goes, but I believe we can fix this. And so do the people I work with. Sir, you work with retards. Do you, do you drive to bus? Do you, do you drive to your office? On this is on a short bus with all of your coworkers, because <laughs> if they all agree with you, your entire business should be destroyed. A world where we can move from making a living to having a life. The monetary system I just described, and which I've named "See Me," makes sure no one ever has to has to worry about making ends meet. Everything that is needed to build a well-functioning society will always have adequate funding, and businesses sitting on sitting on stashes of cash will have an incentive to invest it because of the hoarding tax. That same hoarding tax makes sure money moves, thereby guaranteeing a working economy and increasing accessibility to money for everyone. Uh, no, it doesn't actually. Because if, so basically what he's saying is that hoarding money is not okay, but hoarding assets is. So you could, as long as like, say you're a billionaire and they're going to implement this genius scheme, well, you just can't hold it in fiat currency. So then you would just have them buying up all of the assets that exist as opposed to keeping any sort of cash savings. And you think that this is how you eliminate inequality? 
as opposed to creating oligarchs, you dumb dumb? Accessibility for the poor, for budding entrepreneurs, for research, for the environment, for artists, the list goes on. <laughs> and you knew he would list artists. Because <laughs> that's what the Marxists always talk about. They're always like, we need to have, you know, a constant flow of money to everyone so that artists can create. Well, the truth is that oftentimes, once you give them free money, they have less incentive to actually go out and create that art. So it doesn't end up working even in their theoretical realm. I want to live in a fair world, a world where everyone has a fair chance to thrive, no matter where they are born. The way our money is designed today stands in the way of that. It should and can support our well-being instead of hindering it. All we have to do is write a software and run the program. It is that easy. <laughs> No, it's fucking not, dude. <laughs> his genius idea is MMT. That's his genius idea. He thinks that, like, because he discovered what a central bank was <laughs> and how it works, and now he's a computer programmer, he's like, well, we can just program more units of currency and then tax the rich more aggressively. Hoarders. As if, as if capital accumulation is such an evil. As if that's like not a necessary, uh, a necessary beginning to the growth of an economy where you create, you know, factories and production lines and you're able to hire, you know, thousands of people. Like these, these people are so detached from reality and they, and they get up and they're applauded. They're applauded for it as if this is some ideological innovation. When he's literally just espousing, you know, Keynesian Marxist nonsense, drivel. Or do we really want to keep running the planet on badly designed software? Now, I know there will be those who say it cannot be done. <laughs> Me, hello. There were also people who said man would never fly. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. Or that women's voting rights were a pipe dream. <laughs> Repeal the 19th. I think it's the 19th. Or that people of color would never sit in the same section of the bus as white people do, let alone become president of the United States. <laughs> History has shown the impossible does happen. We can make it happen again. <laughs> if a black man can be president, we can... We can... Eliminate scarcity. <laughs> we can get a, get rid of human poverty across the planet if a black man can be president. <laughs> That's kind of racist, actually. <laughs> we can silly. write a new money app. When we unite, there is no stopping us. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there you have it. <laughs> so I hope you feel... Uh, better educated on the Ukrainian war. I hope you understand that any tacit support for our funding, our arming of them is inching us ever closer towards potential nuclear war. Or, you know, even if it weren't nuclear war, even if it weren't World War III, if it's just a war with Russia, um, tremendously dangerous because it can escalate to those things. Not to mention there's a real chance 
that Russia uses cyber warfare against us because they are a no joke cyber warfare specialist because they have been preparing for the inevitability of of the U.S. You know, trying some shit, and we tried some shit, and here we are. Russia's calling our bluff, and we're trying to call theirs, and it's like at some point someone's got to back down, and I see no reason for us to have this terribly antagonistic relationship with, with Russia. I really don't. I mean, we are allies and big business, you know, we have huge business ties with many non-democratic leaders and, and nations and governments across the world. Saudi Arabia comes to mind, um, which have terrible human rights atrocities. I mean, just what they're doing to Yemen. So this is all nonsense. Like the entire portrayal of Putin is this like singular evil, this modern day Hitler. Many of them have, you know, analogized him to be worse than Hitler. This is all, it's all propaganda and nonsense. And ultimately, like it's up to the Russian people if they don't want Putin. That's their, that's their cross to bear. And it's up to the Ukrainian people if they want to be separate from Russia or part of it, that's up to them to have that fight. That isn't our business. And the fact that we were involved in fomenting this divide and leading them to this point, we have our own blood on our hands with the people that are dying right now. That's just the truth. And it's not to justify any of it. It's just to explain. There's a backdrop here that they're not telling you about. And I'm sure many of my listeners already know. And I appreciate that you have a greater level of, you know, backdrop to this story. Um, but I hope that there's at least some people that learned something tonight as to you know what's really transpiring because it's not it's not as crystal clear as they're trying to make it sound. And your support, even if it's just putting an emoji and you know helping with the propaganda campaign that we must all stand with Ukraine, it's not helpful. Sorry, it's not. Anyways, if you want to support the show, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. If you're watching it, you're already there. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for becoming a supporter of the show. And if you want to, check that out. Yo, that's the best design Top Lobster has ever made. Look at that. That is so sick. Established 2020, Liberty Lockdown. What's up, son? Go to toplobster.com, search for Liberty Lockdown, and you will find that amongst many other new designs that are all fire. And last but not least, I will be going to three three state conventions over the next over during april uh first off april 2nd on saturday i will be at the uh do they even say where yeah at the connecticut uh event with scott horton angela mccardle spike cohen uh, via zoom because he's a coward and he doesn't want to show up because he knows we're going to scrap i'm just kidding i love spike uh robbie the fire and dr aaron lewis and then the next weekend, April 8th, I will be at Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Irving, Texas. You can fly into Dallas-Fort Worth if you want to fly, or if you live there locally, even better. Come out and see your boy, Clint Russell, and Dave Smith talking live on stage. It's going to be amazing. Uh, that's Texas Mises Caucus. And then lastly, April 29th through May 1st, I will be in Newark, Ohio, for the Libertarian Party of Ohio where Donald Rainwater, former Indiana Libertarian uh, candidate for governor, as well as myself, will be talking. And yeah, this is awesome. Like, I can't tell you, it's it's the thrill of my life. It's the honor of my life to carry on Ron Paul's legacy, as Dave said on 
this this week's episode um i really i just feel so blessed and i couldn't have done it without you guys i really appreciate all the support that you've given me over the years almost years almost two years now uh two months from now it'll be my two-year anniversary so i just want to thank you so much for uh sharing the show and spreading the message because it means everything to me and i know it means everything to you guys too not not me not the show but the message itself like what we're doing here is very, very important. And thank you guys for being part of it. Anyways, I'll catch you next week with Judge Andrew Napolitano and Roger Stone. And I have a special guest that I am booking right now, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. Catch you next time. We're out. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweet from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening Scared Hollywood lefties lyrical feminine A typo and Luke might bring the nooses We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses Freckles and Brit, didn't know I could spit Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcast sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty, now hear me roar Beat running up, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house The malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copy the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Liable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky smooth time was the only sound Getting so hot must be air July Screaming in the mic, I ripped for 59 Monster ratio, that black guns matter Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war, but we're ready You know I'd be bopping and rock steady Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows, just don't get treated like a hoe